Hello and welcome to this very special episode of Movie Culture. Today we are talking about the Academy Awards and specifically go through the eight movies nominated for Best Picture. We'll do our best to remain relatively spoiler-free in this episode, but we're going to be talking about some of the broader themes and tones from each of these movies. And at the end, we'll give some personal picks and hopefully I can get Tay to make some predictions about the writing categories. So without further ado, let's talk about the Oscars. Let's go. So I think we should start by talking about the movies in descending order of likelihood to win, according to, you know, movie Twitter and people online like us. So we're going to start with the relative long shots and then work our way towards who those same people think are the favorites. These are not our rankings, but we needed some order and this seemed better than alphabetical. Yeah, I actually don't know what the general consensus is. So lead us through, Joshua. Okay, that means that up first, with potentially the longest odds, we have The Father. The Father is co-written and directed by Florian Zeller based on a play he wrote in 2012. The movie follows an aging man, played by Anthony Hopkins, who struggles with memory loss and moves in with his daughter, played by Olivia Colman. And the father's available to stream on demand on Google Play, YouTube, and Amazon. Okay, I'm shocked that this is in last place. What? Look, all are relatively likely. It still got nominated. But I know, I really like this one. This movie is good, and it's also extremely hard to talk about because of all the movies, it might be the one that is best to just go in knowing as little as possible. That's a great point. If you want to just skip ahead, and we're going to put timestamps in the show notes. I should have said that earlier. So you'll be able to see when we start the next one. There is something about this movie specifically of knowing absolutely nothing going in. I didn't know anything, and it was wild. It was a ride. But if you're going to do that, we'll give you five seconds to get off. But also, this movie is so good, and we'd really encourage it. So spoil, not like very light information starting now. This movie involves a man who's losing his memory and is not told like a sad movie about an aging man. It's told almost like a psychological thriller. There are things that don't really add up over the course of the movie. And it seems like you as the audience are having a similar experience that the man might be having. What things are happening when? How do you put all these pieces together? Are you supposed to know some characters? Are you not supposed to know some characters? Where are you? When is it? Who is everyone? Those are questions that he is asking, but also you as the audience are asking. It's so well done. And Mm -hmm. everything about this movie just leads to this sense of uneasiness. Just the way that it's shot, it's always kind of not out of focus, but focusing on the wrong thing. I feel Mm. like in scenes, the camera will be kind of at the wrong angle and you want to just reach in and move the camera a little bit because you feel like you're just missing something. You're missing the context. And it's just the whole movie, you feel that sense of of dread and confusion and fear. And it's so good. Something that Florian Zeller does so, so well 
is he has engineered every single thing about the movie to be about this one feeling, this feeling of not knowing exactly where everything is, as you're saying. And later we'll talk about the writing of this movie and what is specifically in the script. But yeah, he does that in the sound and he does that in the cinematography and everything else that goes into it. It is one work of art about a single mood and it is so, so tight the whole way through. Yeah. And I think what you said is so true about it's not that it's sad. It's because I feel like so much, so many stories about aging are told from other perspectives of, of the loved one's perspective. Exactly. Um, I say that knowing that that is a book that I wrote too. Um, but it's rare to see it from the perspective of the aging person. I think partially because in Hollywood, especially, there aren't a lot of stories told about older people. I, I thought it was it was done so well. It really just captured that this is horrifying. This is a psychological horror. Yeah, it's really, really phenomenal. And while everything about this movie is amazing, I think it is absolutely necessary to specifically point out Anthony Hopkins, who, as this old man, is just absolutely stunning. There's just something about Anthony Hopkins as an actor that you can see lots of other actors do what they do and do things really, really well. And then he just blows everyone away. Just the speed with which he goes through identifiable emotions is breathtaking. It's it's phenomenal. It It is the best acting performance I've seen in years. Seriously. The acting is so good. And Olivia Colman is so also good amazing. in it, too. It's great. I loved it. Yeah. I actually, I didn't have high expectations going into it. I mean, I had very little expectations at all, but I'm very glad we watched it. And I think we delayed seeing it maybe because it seemed like it might be a sad movie. It might be, you know, an internal story about a mother and father and coming to terms with his eventual death. And it's not that. It's... It's a cool movie. I will say, though, if you know someone or have experience with dementia in some way. Memory loss. It's it's hard to watch it. I mean, it is it's intense. It's very intense. Yeah. So. All right. Okay, moving along. Next up, Sound of Metal. Sound of Metal is directed and co-written by Darius Martyr and tells the story of a heavy metal drummer played by Riz Ahmed as he loses his hearing. Sound of Metal is streaming on Amazon Prime. Tay, what did you think about Sound of Metal? I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. This is about somewhere in the middle of the pack for me, but I'm glad that we watched it. I thought that Riz Ahmed was very good. He's so good. I had a lot of anxiety going into this movie because I thought it was going to be a lot more intense just in the content Mm -hmm. than it was, but it actually had, it felt wholesome in some ways. Yeah. And I enjoyed that a lot. I think one thing this movie does, and it does it well, and then I also think it might be a detriment to this movie, is it moves between themes and resolutions for this character. It, at some points, is a movie about coming to terms with your own disability and your changing circumstances and how your life is going to go differently than you thought it would. And that has a very wholesome message. 
But then there are themes of addiction drawn in and about tranquility and coming to terms with your place in the world. And I think the movie would have been stronger had it really stuck to one of those themes and held it through instead of being a little bit of a grab bag. But I agree that there are real wonderful moments in this movie that, like The Father, is also about disability in some way. And I really love that we get to see these stories that are not just about sadness. You also get to see the community that you can have and that your life can change in lots of different ways and lots of unexpected ways, but many of them for the better. I think that is a really powerful message. I agree. I love the portrayal of the deaf community. I think that the movie does some very smart things with when Ruben feels outside of the community versus when he feels inside. It does some very smart things Mm -hmm. about bringing the audience inside as well. I mean, when he first has hearing loss and he goes to this community, he doesn't know any sign language. And so we see people signing, but like Ruben, we don't know what's going on. Mm. And as the movie progresses and as he learns sign language, we start to see subtitles. And I thought that that was just a very quietly brilliant way to do this. Yeah, it is a really, really well put together from the craft perspective. The other thing it does is not just bring the audience into the movie, but it also brings the audio in and out Mm. of the movie. As you might expect... The movie about deafness being nominated for an Oscar means that the sound mixing is just incredible. And the way that it goes from very, very loud with his music to quiet and the way that it shows, you know, the difference between silence and what he's experiencing and what other people are experiencing and how it goes in and out and the tragedy of that is really, really phenomenal. Yeah. And I do want to say something about addiction that is... I suppose a light spoiler, so skip ahead 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just, I really appreciated that they had a character who was a former addict and he didn't relapse. There's certainly that tension throughout the movie that this is something that might happen, but he doesn't. And I thought that that was pretty powerful to be able to have a character who is an addict, but his story is not just about addiction and it's not inevitable that he's going to relapse even when this thing happens to him. That is a specific spoiler that you really care about having, that you want to have. Yes, yeah. I think the way that Riz Ahmed plays it through the movie, and I think he is another fantastic actor. Um, And we should also mention Paul Rassi, who is a deaf actor who's nominated for Best Supporting Actor, also terrific. But Riz Ahmed plays this so well as a young man trying to figure out his place in the world. To me, it is among the most grounded movies, the most personal stories that we get from the Oscars this year, because it's about one person and their dreams and what they want to do and how they think that they can achieve that. And that's what it's going for. You really buy in with him. He's He's a wonderful character and you want to be close with Ruben. You want things to work out well for him. Yeah, it was good. Liked it a lot. People have been saying, I'm going to shout out some people. You're getting a little bit of commentary on the side of these movies, dear listener. (laughs) Some people are saying that this was not a good year for movies. What you're going to learn listening to us talk about what 
people in movies thought were the eight best movies of the year is that we thought these movies were pretty good, generally. Wild that people thought that this was a weak year. Yeah. I don't understand that. I think I think one thing about it is that not that many movies came out. There were not a lot of big blockbusters because COVID. theaters weren't open. And because of that, there were not movies that really stood out and held cultural conversation that were both popular and good. Does that make sense? Yeah. The movies that were good, you saw them in your own house. You didn't necessarily know that there was a big conversation. And in other years, we might get one or two big theatrical releases joined in. I think Tenant was potentially one of those, the Christopher Nolan movie that came out. I don't think that that lived up to many people's expectations, but also no one got to see it in the theater, which is where it was supposed to be seen, you know, supposed to in quotations. So in the absence of that big cultural moment, I think that might leave people lacking. I don't necessarily think that means it wasn't a good year, I think it means that the supply was a little bit down, but the movies that came out, I thought they were really good. And one movie did have a really big cultural moment, and that's the next movie on our list. Ooh. Judas and the Black Messiah. It's the biopic about the betrayal of Fred Hampton, played by Daniel Kaluuya, who's the chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, at the hands of FBI informant William O'Neill, played by Lakeith Stanfield. The movie was directed and produced by Shaka King, who co-wrote the story with Will Burson and Keith and Kenny Lucas. Judas and the Black Messiah was streaming for a month on HBO Max, and now it's off HBO Max, but it will return at some point in the future, hard to know when. I thought this movie had a big cultural moment. It was exciting when it came out. It was a real get for the HBO streaming service, and this movie feels like a big event. And I think at the very top of that is Daniel Kaluuya's performance. Oh, yeah. Both performances, both him and Lakeith Stanfield. But Daniel Kaluuya, specifically. He can just do so many things. From his role in Get Out, he was on SNL a couple weeks ago. Really? Yeah, and he was, like, great and funny and charming. And he's also, like, this British guy. I think he was in an episode of Black Mirror. He's British? Oh, my God. He is so British. Oh, his American accent is so good. And he has, like, four of them. Um... (laughs) Obviously, he's incredible in Black Panther. He's great in Widows. He's so creepy in Widows. He is honestly such an incredible actor. I think that he might be the next great actor that we have. Like, I think there is no ceiling to his acting talent. Wow. I think if we were doing a draft of the actors, of who we thought the best actors would be for the next 30 years, I think Daniel Kaluuya might be my number one pick. I just, I have... I think he's amazing. I'll stop gushing because there are a lot of other things to like about this movie. Yeah. I think my favorite part was actually Fred Hampton's girlfriend, who is played by Dominique Fishback. She just has some great speeches and some great dialogues with Fred Hampton Mm -hmm. about her experiences and the intersection of being black and a woman and her fears about raising a child and what it means to be an activist and a mother. And I just, I thought that those speeches were so well done. And to bring that perspective in really gave an extra layer to this movie. This movie is really interesting because it serves two purposes. The first is as a biopic of Fred Hampton. And part of that is his relationship with the woman who was known as Deborah Johnson, is now known as Akua and Jerry. 
who he has a romance with and who in the movie they shape each other. And the movie also talks a lot about the Black Panther Party and the work that he was doing to feed kids in Chicago to build a rainbow coalition of oppressed people. Mm-hmm. And the way that power structures and the police and the FBI didn't allow that. And the way that his radical socialism informed everything he did. There's a moment late in the movie where he learns that he could get money that would serve as his bail money. And he thinks about it and rejects the money because he says, how many lives could we save with that money? And that's so much more than just me not going to prison. The biopic part of it is so good and paints this picture of a hero. Truly, like, Fred Hampton is a hero. And I'm glad that the Fred Hampton movie finally got made. And to have someone like Daniel Kaluuya playing Fred Hampton, just bringing all that charisma, we really feel the impact that Fred Hampton had. Exactly. Those speeches are given, and they're so strong. Although... Shout out to my brother. One thing he said is, loved the movie, but also he would rather just watch Fred Hampton speeches on YouTube after, which, you know, (laughs) look, that seems like good additional material. The second thing that this movie does is it is a cat and mouse informer informant story. And that is with the FBI informant, William O'Neill, who, as a child was brought into the FBI to infiltrate and undermine the Black Panther Party, giving potentially the information that led to Fred Hampton's death. And the movie really focuses on this specific aspect. And Lakeith Stanfield is also incredible playing someone absolutely torn and nuanced between doing horrific things in his betrayal of this important person, but also you see the way that the system has trapped him. And I think the nuanced portrayal of these characters is truly incredible and thought-provoking. It's not an easy movie. This is not a movie about the good guys who are taken down by the bad guys. I think much more than that, this movie is about the structures and systems that put pressure onto people and who fights against those systems and who allows those systems to act upon them without pushing back and the costs of that. But also it asks the audience, I think, what would you have done in this situation? At the beginning of the movie, Lakeith Stanfield's character is arrested and he is constantly threatened with both jail time and being outed to the Panthers as an FBI informant, knowing what that would mean for him in terms of being tortured, essentially. Well, the police also lie about what that torture would mean and make it seem far worse and then imply that the Black Panthers, or tell him that the Black Panthers would kill him and torture him. Exactly. So you find him with real consequences and having to make really serious decisions and... I think the movie walks a really fine line between having sympathy and empathy for this character while not saying that what he did was in the right in any way. Because he still obviously did terrible, terrible things. But you understand what was happening in his head in a way that I think is not easy but is powerful. I agree with that. 
something that I found tricky about the movie that has stuck with me, though, is this question of, with any biopic, mm-hmm. of how closely you have to stick to what really happened. Yeah. And the thing that I kept thinking about was that Bill O'Neill was 17 when the FBI arrested him and made this deal with him. And when Fred Hampton is assassinated, he's only 22. 21. 21. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about how great the acting was and how much we love Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield, but they're adults. Yeah. And so to watch them and to think about their characters as adults with the context and the agency that adults do versus kids. I mean, Bill Bill O'Neill was a minor. Yeah. And it just, when you think about how young they were, it adds this whole other layer to, to what the police were doing and just how evil that was. Yeah. To manipulate a 17-year-old and to use that 17-year-old as a tool to kill a 21-year-old. Yeah, it is absolutely tragic. And what happened in real life in 1968 was absolutely tragic. And seeing it happen on screen is also a tragedy, not only in the emotional sense, but also in a grand sense that it is a real tragic story. One thing that I really enjoyed about this movie, though, is it doesn't watch sad. Mm -hmm. It is inspiring, and there are big speeches, and there are big crowds, and there are action scenes. You know, in a way, I heard Keith and Kenny Lucas describe it as The Departed meets Cointelpro, and I think that's the way to say it. Like, it's it's an action cop FBI informant movie. That's how it watches about this tragedy. I really like this movie. I would really, really recommend it. Yeah. I feel like watching them as adults adds to the complexity of it in a way. Mm. Because you are thinking more, what would you do in this situation? Or what does agency really mean? Mm -hmm. Whereas when they're kids, they don't... A 17-year-old, a minor, does not have the same agency at all when it's in the situation of the police manipulating them. Yeah, absolutely. And it feels much, to me, it feels much more clear-cut about who has the power and who is the bad guy when you think about what really happened and how old they were and how how organized the police were in doing this and and how they had this plan and they were going to find somebody to manipulate and scare and use. And it happened to be William O'Neill. Just to be clear, you're saying it is clearer if he's younger that all the blame lies on the FBI instead of the blame being shared potentially between the FBI and Bill O'Neill. Yes, and not excu- not excusing what Bill O'Neill did, but, I mean, when you understand the context... He was a kid. Yeah. 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 And, and so I think that there is this perhaps interesting layer of, of how much blame, hypothetically, would an adult in this situation mm-hmm. share, but that hypothetical is not actually reality. 
what responsibility does the biopic have? Yeah. But that said, I did really like the movie. There's certainly a sliding scale that the movie could have done between the nuance that it has and the tragedy that it has. And where you think it lands on that sliding scale, if you think it balances correctly or tips farther too far in one direction, and if the way it varies a little bit from the true facts, and that isn't addressed in the movie, you know, it is, it's a biopic, it's not, you know, fiction based on, uh, based on real life. I do think that really impacts how, what you, what you feel about the movie. Yeah. Either way, I would really recommend it. I think that this might be the movie I'm a, I am most excited to revisit and watch again of all the movies that came out this year. Yeah, I think that this movie deserves a rewatch. Yeah, and we said that right after, too. But you know what movie might not deserve a rewatch? What movie is that? Well, that movie is Mank. And this might be a controversial opinion because there are a lot of people, especially a lot of real film geeks, who love this movie. I am not one of the film geeks who love this movie. (laughs) So Mank is a biopic about Citizen Kane screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz, played by Gary Oldman. The movie is directed by David Fincher, and it was written by his father, Jack Fincher, before he passed in 2003. David Fincher's been trying to make this movie for about 20 years, and right now it's streaming on Netflix. I understand that this was a passion project for David Fincher, and there are things about this movie that I think work. You know, I think David Fincher is a masterful director, but... This movie just did not really do it for me, and for you either, I'm hearing. Okay, so I'm a plebe. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a sophisticated moviegoer, and thus I feel that there is no excuse for having a black and white movie in the 21st century. (laughs) We have color technology now! (laughs) I know that it is not... The most thoughtful film critique that I could offer. However, I don't understand (laughs) why he made us sit through a black and white movie, except for that he wanted it to seem more artistic than it was. And like more similar to Citizen Kane. Yeah, it's it's fine. We, We understand that it is about the person who wrote Citizen Kane. It doesn't need to be black and white in order to convey that. Look, I I respect the choice. I respect a bold choice, but I also like color. (laughs) One thing we really enjoy in movies, and I think that everyone really enjoys in movies, is when good craft elevates a story. I think that Mank has really excellent craft that does almost nothing at any point to elevate the story, which makes it more of a museum exhibit and like a technical showcase than an interesting or good movie. That's a pretty harsh critique, but I'm thinking about the way that Sound of Metal, for example, uses sound mixing. If Mank was to use the black and white technology in the same way, in a way to enhance the story, I would have been all on board. But you're right, it didn't. And It didn't do that in the camera angles it used either. It didn't use it in the narrative techniques it used or the way that the movie jumps around through time. 
none of the craft aspects build to the larger story. Josh, that is a much better way of saying my critique. So let's pretend that's also what I was saying. (laughs) I know it was what you were saying. I was thinking about that as you were saying your thing. I was like, how can I articulate this in like a pedantic movie crit way? I also have to point out the fact that this movie inexplicably made the relationship between Mank and Amanda Seyfried. Yeah, his like girlfriend, wife. They made it so much creepier than it was in real life. Why did they make the age gap so wide? Yeah, like in real life, they're both in their 40s. And in this movie, Gary Oldman's like, in his 60s and Amanda Seyfried's in her late 20s. It's horrible. Look, if you're doing another biopic, there are so many creepy relationships in the past between very old men and very young women that you don't need to add one in to a story about two people who are married at the same age. There's no reason to add that in. Why'd they do that? Why? Could they not have gotten a 40-year-old actor and a 40-year-old actress to play them? Yeah, I a lot of choices I don't understand in this movie. I also thought what's this why what's this movie about? That is another really good point. Because I think there are some things that this movie dips its toe into that are really interesting. There's a subplot about Upton Sinclair's campaign for I believe governor of California. Is that it? I think so. And about the way that movies and media turn into propaganda for politics and the way that Mank and his compatriots sacrifice their ideals for the people who have money and capital. And that is an influence on him to write what turns out to be a skewering of wealth and media moguls in what turns out to be Citizen Kane. That is a really interesting movie. That is also not what this movie was. Yeah, that was a very small side part of the movie. Yeah. Instead, the movie gets lost a little bit in the main character. And it's just about this old man in bed writing Citizen Kane. So he's... Sort of. You don't really see him do it at any point. It's not about his process. It's not like, how did Citizen Kane get to be so good? It's just about like an old drunk man who's old and drunk and all of his friends tell him that he shouldn't be writing this movie, but he does anyway. Yeah, it also plays into some tropes about writing itself that I don't like. There's the controversy of him and Orson Welles and who really wrote the movie. And again, I thought that this movie was going to be maybe about that, but it's not really. It's just kind of touched on. Right, the movie is very much wants to say that Mank wrote it, which is based, I believe, only on one interview that Mank gave where he said something salty about how Orson Welles wasn't even there for the writing of it. Yeah. But the way that this plays out is that in the movie, Orson Welles is mostly off screen and they have some phone calls. And then Orson Welles comes at the end of the movie and throws this weird temper tantrum that is so bizarre And completely takes you out of the movie because they haven't established Orson Welles as a character at all. And then all of a sudden he's on screen like throwing things. Yeah. And talking about how he had to rewrite all of this. And my takeaway 
<laughs> is that it seems like Mank wrote a very convoluted, long, messy first draft, and Orson Welles did all the work of rewriting it and putting it together, in which case I would side with Orson Welles, who seems to have done the majority of the work, but anyway. I love that your take from this movie is, oh, it seems like Mank didn't actually write Citizen Kane. Oh, the movie's trying so hard to convince us that he did, but simultaneously they just show us they just show him getting drunk in bed and then occasionally writing a scene and then flirting with a very inappropriately young woman. This movie is written by a man who wasn't there when it was made, and all the artistic decisions were made by his son, who was the director. And it's about a man who wrote a movie that turned into the director's vision and was totally about the director. And it's a little weird that the movie's trying to argue, even with those parallels, that it was really about the writer. And it feels like David Fincher is trying to write a love letter to his dad about like how great writers are like his dad. And that's sweet, but that's not what the movie's saying. And he missed it. He missed it. It... It is a weird, sentimental movie that I don't know why. I don't know why this movie had to be what it is. And there are so many things it could have been that could have been interesting. Uh, but what it is is not one of them. And it's not particularly close. Look, this wasn't a movie that we enjoyed. But I am happy that David Fincher got to write his dad's movie. Yeah, that's sweet. It's nice. I'm... I'm I'm glad. All right. Coming up <laughs> next, moving along, we have four movies down, four movies left. Number four is Promising Young Woman, which was written and directed by Emerald Fennell. The movie follows a woman, played by Carrie Mulligan, who seeks to avenge her best friend, who died by suicide after being raped, by feigning drunkenness in clubs, allowing men to take her to their homes and revealing her sobriety when they try to take advantage of her. Promising Young Woman is available on demand on Google Play, YouTube, and Amazon. Tay, what did you think about Promising Young Woman? Oh, this movie was good. I enjoyed it. It's... It's bold. Oh, yeah. That's a great... That's a great word for it. Yeah, I love the uh, the aesthetic of cutesy pastels, but the mm -hmm. content is so heavy. Yeah. I thought Carrie Mulligan was so good. Carrie Mulligan is absolutely incredible. I think she's the favorite for best actress. Oh, yeah. Deservedly. She's terrific. And the third act of this movie, we will not spoil, but... Oh, my God. It's wild. What a third act. I was watching it thinking, I don't know how this how how she's going to pull this off. Mm -hmm. I don't know how this movie's going to end. Mm -hmm. And um, the ending. Wow. Did not expect it. Very good. Yeah. We won't talk about what happens, but... The discourse about the ending has been really interesting because I think it can be interpreted in a number of different ways. To me, it's all about the question of what is justice, who gets justice, what does justice look like when you're talking about sexual assault. And it is a rare movie that knows that the ending is not the ending and is part of a larger world and starts these larger conversations. I think the movie does that really interestingly, and I just really, I really liked it. I really like the conversations that it sparks. 
Me too. And I love that Cassie, our heroine, is a morally gray character. Yeah. This movie also plays with nuance in a really cool way. Yeah. And and I mean, talking about the discourse, I have seen people who feel uncomfortable with some of Cassie's actions. Good. And yeah, I think that that is very intentional. I, I think that the movie makes a choice that she's not supposed to be all good or all bad, that she's mm-hmm. she's very much an anti-hero. And I think that maybe as a culture, we have some discomfort around anti-heroes if they aren't white men. That's a great point. We don't usually get people in the, you know, Walter White, Don Draper vein in the same way that Carrie Mulligan is in this movie who look like Carrie Mulligan. Right. And so I like this movie because it's challenging. It's challenging stereotypes and expectations. And wow. I would also say with this movie, again, it is about sexual assault and rape and the results of that, both for the victim and also throughout the community, Mm -hmm. the number of people that are affected, the impact it has. It is not only a movie about sexual assault. It's it's a black comedy, I think. Yes. Mm -hmm. It is a really fun movie to watch, even though it is about those tropes. So if that is a trope that you're uncomfortable with, of course, keep that in mind. But this movie, like a lot of the movies we've talked about, like Judas and the Black Messiah, like The Father, these could be really slow, sad, dense topics, but they're not. Like this, this movie moves really well. It is tense. It's gripping. It's exciting. I thought this was a really good movie. And I believe this is Emerald Fennell's directorial debut. That's impressive. I will also add that I want her to keep writing movies like this with the depth that this movie has and about heavier content. Um, But also, if she on the side wants to write fun rom-coms, I I would definitely watch that. The banter between Carrie Mulligan and Bo Burnham's characters is a lot of fun to watch. We're big fans of Bo Burnham on this show. If we were around a couple years ago, you would have heard us talk about Eighth Grade, which is a movie we absolutely loved. And yes, the banter and romance in this movie, it could be its own side movie. Like, it could have just been a romance. Yeah, it's some of the best banter that I have seen in a while. So... That was great. All right. Next, we've got Minari. Minari was written and directed by Lee Isaac Chung and follows a South Korean family who moved to Arkansas in the 1980s. Steven Yoon stars as a father trying to start a farm to provide for his family, who understand their community through three generations of the immigrant experience. Minari is available on demand on Google Play, YouTube, and Amazon. Josh. Yes, Tay? You know how I feel about this movie. It's going to be hard for me to talk about it because I love it so much. (laughs) Okay, let's do our best to talk about what this movie is about and what we liked about it before we talk about how much we liked it, (sighs) Okay, which was a lot. All right. I will say that I have seen some people talking about how it's a very sad immigrant story. I don't know what they're talking about. There's certainly sad parts and there's aspects to it. But it's it's the whole range of emotions. There's some moments that are so funny and relatable, and you just feel so much for this family. And I love that. I actually I loved that it wasn't just a sad, 
heavy immigrant story. And I, I think saying that now that that's such a theme in all of these movies that we've been talking mm-hmm. about, that they could be very heavy and depressing, but there's so much more to them. This is a movie to me about the American dream. And we For can sure. talk, you know, we can have problems about what the American dream means, what that really is, the way that it's influenced our culture. But this movie is about that. And it doesn't need to be a sad immigrant story. It's about people pursuing their dreams in a particular American way through agriculture and religion in some ways. So it is a family story. It is, I think, one of the great family movies in the way that it gives really crucial and valid and true stories through three generations. Mm -hmm. And it talks about what the grandparents' generation is like and how, how things are experienced with a world that has become rapidly different from the one that they understand. It is the story of parents who are trying to provide for everyone around them, but also have fulfilling lives for themselves. There's a lot about work and passion in this movie. And it's a story about children who want to make friends and get along and have fun and have adventures and fit in and and who understand their limited agency and are trying to interact with their family and their surroundings and learn things. The movie works on all these levels. And I think reducing it to being an immigrant story, even though it is a really incredible immigrant story, but putting it in that category makes it feel like it can't be in other categories. And I think that this movie just has such broad appeal. I just love the movie so much that I can't imagine anyone not loving this movie and not getting the very basic messages from this movie. Mm -hmm. And of course, it also has extremely deep appeal and that there are some things that you really, really, really connect to. And obviously you have a very different experience with this movie than I did. Yeah. So... I, halfway through the movie, just started crying. (laughs) Um, Not even at a sad moment. Not at a sad moment, no. Partially because I think that this movie is one of the first times that I personally have really understood what it means to see representation. Mm -hmm. This movie is so specific. Mm -hmm. Just some of the things that this family does, just the way that... The hominy brings foods from Korea in these plastic bags in her suitcase. We paused the movie and looked at each other. We're like, oh my gosh, because that's what my grandmother does. And then there are the little Korean marriage dolls. They play the Korean card game that I grew up with. And there's just these little details Mm -hmm. that are so specific. And I loved that. I loved seeing that. But also, I was crying because (laughs) this is truly so nerdy. I just was so moved by the craft of this movie. It's rare to see a movie that is so intentional about what it's trying to say and the themes that it's trying to relate. Mm -hmm. And every single line of dialogue, every single scene relates back to these broader themes about the American dream and what that means and and what people sacrifice for it, and if it's ever attainable. Mm -hmm. And it's just brilliant the way that this movie ties together. And it feels like 
such a gift because it's so thought through. And I loved the way that it, I loved the way that it captures the immigrant experience, not just of struggling, but the feeling of moving from one culture to another and what you have to give up in order to do that and how that's very painful, but also what you gain in a new culture and ultimately how you find the space between them. And I think I thought that specifically the way that they use Minari, the plant, as a metaphor mm-hmm. for that immigrant experience was incredible. I think that you could watch this movie a hundred times and pick something else up every single time and learn something. The writing, the craft of this movie is so good. The way that there are parallels that run through it, the way that things are planted and pay off in ways that you don't expect. One thing that happens Mm. pretty routinely is that the father storyline and the son storyline will intersect. In some movies like this, there's a way that this movie could have been where you feel like you're watching separate movies, like the father's off on one adventure, the son's off on another, and they are related but different. But it is absolutely seamless the way that it moves between the two in a way that is breathtaking. The craft is breathtaking of this movie. It is. Josh, it's so good. (laughs) Every second of it has a purpose. And also mm -hmm. the way that language is used with Korean and English. Yeah. I agree with you that Chadwick Boseman is going to get best actor, but I do feel like Stephen Yoon is not being appreciated enough because of what he's doing with these two different languages. Yeah. And the way that if you watch his performance, his body language, the way that he carries himself and seems to understand himself and present himself to the world changes based on the language that he's using and and it's subtle but it's very recognizable Mm -hmm. you feel it even if you don't notice it yeah and i think that's true for a lot of this movie i think subtle is a great word for it but subtle can often be taken to mean soft Mm -hmm. or unnoticeable and that's not what this movie is like this movie is really there and it is emotional and funny and exciting and engaging and tense but also like you said like every single thing is so expertly woven together that i just think it is really worth opening up a magnifying glass and looking in deeper and deeper and deeper because you'll keep seeing fun and interesting and surprising things this movie is really, really rewarding. Yes. And I and when I'm saying subtle, I think that I mean that it's not the type of performance or writing that calls attention to how smart it is. Mm-hmm. It's so smart that it feels seamless and natural. And like this is mm-hmm. just real. Yeah. And it's letting you into this window of a real family. I hope that the Academy notices. I hope that the whole world notices how good this movie is 
But even if they don't, we did. It's so good. And I hope that everyone who listens to it feels the same way because like, just watch this movie. Watch it closely. It is so incredible. Uh, okay, we should move on. Now okay. I'm just, oh, I loved it so much. <laughs> okay. Well, if we're talking about subtlety, I think mm-hmm. that leads us right into the next movie, which is The Trial of the Chicago Seven. <laughs> oh, no. It's like the opposite. Because <laughs> this movie is not subtle. The Trial of the Chicago Seven is written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, and the movie follows the trial of the historical Chicago Seven a group of anti-Vietnam War protesters charged with inciting riots at the 1968 Democratic National Convention. The Trial of the Chicago 7 is streaming on Netflix. And maybe I'll start by saying that this is the second movie we've talked about that is based in Chicago in the summer of 1968 with Judas and the Black Messiah. If Minari is the type of movie where the writing does not call attention to how smart it is. This movie is like every single sentence just shouts, I'm Aaron Sorkin, look how clever I am. Aaron Sorkin is great at writing witty dialogue. Yeah. He's one of the best, that's what he's known for. And I appreciate that. I think it's a lot of fun to watch. It's not my personal taste. I feel that writing should be much more about letting the viewer feel like this is real, letting them empathize with characters and have their own emotional journey rather than the emotional journey just being like, clap, clap for the smart author. (laughs) You know, I'm not going to disagree with you about what writing should be about. I will say this is my taste. (laughs) And I love me some Aaron Sorkin. I love the sweeping dialogue. I love the broad proclamations of good versus evil and what nobility is and what is right. No one writes a courtroom scene like Aaron Sorkin does. He's (laughs) so good at it. And you know what? Does that mean that he attributes the entire problems of the movie to like a small grammatical misunderstanding? Yes. Yes, he does. Because Aaron Sorkin believes that little bits of grammar are what makes the world go round. And is that wrong? Yes. But is it fun? Also, yes. Here's why I'm perhaps very critical of this movie. Uh huh. I agree with you. I am truly saying that it is a personal taste that I don't like writing that calls attention to itself. I don't think that's inherently bad. I know Mm -hmm. that a lot of people really like it. And I do think that it is a lot of fun to be in the Aaron Sorkin world for maybe half an hour. I do think that more than that, I get exhausted. Maybe 42 minutes, the length of a West Wing episode. (laughs) Okay. But this movie takes on subject matter that is really important right now. Yeah. And should be really timely. But what it actually has to say about police brutality and racism in America is very soft. It's very toothless. It feels very dated. Hmm. That's interesting. How so? When you talk about the Aaron Sorkin thing of good versus evil and nobility. That comes through so much in his work. 
But his version of nobility seems to maybe not exist. There's something really strange that he does with his characters, specifically with Tom Hayden and Richard Schultz, who is the lawyer played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. For the prosecution. Yes. He pulls both of them towards the moderate middle. Mm-hmm. Whereas in reality, they were both pretty radically on opposite sides. Yeah. Tom Hayden was much more of a lefty radical than this movie portrays him. This movie wants him to be kind of this serious, uptight. I want to end the war, but I want to do it the right way, the noble way, the clean cut way. Yes. And he's the hero of this. And then Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character is, well, first of all, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. It immediately makes the character relatable, maybe. Yeah, he's a likable-looking dude. He's yeah. he's young and handsome, but not in an off-putting way. You know, <laughs> he's like um, the every guy. He is also a very upstanding conservative, and he the whole time knows that this is wrong and feels almost embarrassed that mm-hmm. he has to do this. But you know, this is his job, and he's he's internally conflicted. And and then at the end of the day, he comes around. And he also stands up and applauds when at the end, Tom Hayden reads a list of names of people killed in Vietnam. And notably, A, that list only includes American names and not Vietnamese names. And B, that didn't happen (laughs) in the first place. So they really toned the trial down to make it okay for uh, for the big screen even though it seems like the real trial was much more out of control and chaotic. Although in that case, Aaron Sorkin also adds in things to make them seem nobler and cleaner and more, you know, more sanctified. Right. But Joseph Gordon-Levitt character is a complete fiction Mm -hmm. because this prosecutor with a moral compass who eventually does what is right. The good conservative. That was not who this lawyer was in real life. This lawyer came out after seeing the movie and said that the movie portrayed him as embarrassed by the prosecution, but in fact, he was proud of it and knew that they were right to have a case. He also then went on to talk about how it was Seal's fault for being bound and gagged. Bobby Seal, the leader of the National Black Panther Party, who is advised at points in the movie by Fred Hampton. I mean, this this lawyer in real life was talking about how it was a ploy that the Black Panthers did and that Bobby Seal should have known that he would be bound and gagged. That's disgusting. So in real life, this guy is disgusting. And it's just interesting to me how hard, how important it is to Aaron Sorkin to have this good conservative mm-hmm. and and how important it is for him to make his main character appealing to moderates and to make sure when you say that that the climax of the movie was just because of a grammatical error that Tom Hayden incited violence, but it was an accident and, and it was a semantic error. Yeah. It seems very important to Aaron Sorkin that this should have been very clean and and it should have just been people talking passionately. And that is where change happens is just people standing up and saying things in a very witty, convincing way. And that's how things are meant to be done. And if you do that, then you convince people and you change all of the good conservatives' hearts and the actual 
protesting, that's just kind of a mistake, a messy, sad mistake. It's just an interesting stance to take now. I think that's a really good point. This movie is a protest movie, and it came out at the end of 2020, and it felt topical in a way. Even though it wasn't about the racial protests in Chicago with the Black Panther Party, it touched on that a little bit to show that Aaron Sorkin understands that there's racial tension. And then as soon as Aaron Sorkin virtue signals, then Bobby Seale goes off screen, and it's just on to the Vietnam War protesters who are all white. But the movie is about protest and violence that accompanies protesting and how that violence can be justified and important in creating change. And it has a philosophy about the way that change is created and an optimism about change. I think that you're absolutely right with what you're saying about the way that the film simplifies this and the way that Aaron Sorkin creates a world that everything is very easy. Mm -hmm. And honestly, that's one of the things I liked about the movie because I don't think this movie has to be a historical drama. I think it can be a fantasy. And I think as a fantasy about our current moment, it is a really nice one. It's really uplifting. It is a movie about how the police are unjust and are violent and attack people who just want to do things right, who just want to help people, who want to end the war, who have just causes, and the police and the system are against them for bad reasons. And in the end, the good guys are going to win, and they're going to win the moment. They're going to win the day, even if they lose the trial. And everyone's going to know it. Everyone's going to know it. Even the prosecution's going to know it. It's not real life. It's a fantasy. But I think that it's a fantasy that is worth holding on to and important to keep that optimism. I worry that people see it as reality instead of as fantasy because... Because it's a biopic. I mean, it presents itself as reality. Yeah. And so I think that I don't disagree with you that it's important to have that optimism. But when it's a historical movie... Yeah. Of course, people expect it to portray reality. Yeah. I also think it it's such a white fantasy. This is a movie about police brutality that is almost entirely about white people and how white people are the real heroes <laughs> mm -hmm. when it comes to pushing back against this. I mean, having a protest movie about the police being unjustly violent, having that come out in 2020, and it's a white movie. I mean... Yeah, the movie presents itself as a commentary on our current issues without talking about our current issues or the issues of its day, basically at all. Just talking about the nobility of protest. Right, in which the characters that represent this nobility of protest are just fiction. Yeah. It's so jarring and off-putting to me to have Aaron Sorkin come in here with his ideas of what is good protest and how we should all protest Yeah, in this movie that's just about white people, except for one obligatory scene about the Black Panthers and Bobby Seale. Look, 
you are absolutely right. And none of that stops me from really having enjoyed this movie and thinking (laughs) it was a lot of fun and like a fun escapist fantasy for a little bit. I don't know that it should have been nominated for Best Picture, although I actually think there is a pretty good chance that it would win. If I was to bet not on what I want to happen, but what I think will happen, I think there is a really, really good chance that this movie comes away with the prize because it's a nicer story. It's a nicer story than the one we're telling. It's not as wicked of a problem. It's not Mm -hmm. as inescapable. It's saying all of our problems as society disappear if we just do the noble thing. Liberalism is good and Democrats are good. I think that that is an appealing message for a very specific person. And I acknowledge that Hollywood is filled with well-to-do non-radical liberals. White person fixed racism and it actually wasn't that hard. Or white person fixed the problems in society. Yes. Um, I also, before we stop talking about this, I just have to talk about the other part of the movie that made me very frustrated, which is that there is a somewhat throwaway scene where sexual assault, a very triggering sexual assault scene Mm -hmm. is used solely as character development for one of the male characters. It's used just to show that he's one of the good ones and hashtag not all men. And I think that we need to be done with that trope because it's really damaging. It's dehumanizing. Maybe think of a way that you can show that your male character is good other than him saving a woman from sexual assault because that doesn't make someone good. It just makes them basic level of human decency. Also, it's erasing that woman from that moment of assault for her. It doesn't make it about her at all. It decenters her from that moment. Yep. There are a number of problems with that movie, but the dialogue. <laughs> but the dialogue is really fun. I'm look, at the end of the day, I'm a sucker for Aaron Sorkin. That's I think what it comes down to. Um It's your only flaw. <laughs> <laughs> finally, the favorite to win is Nomadland. Nomadland. Nomadland is written, edited, and directed by Chloe Zhao, based on a book by Jessica Bruder. Frances McDormand produces and stars as a woman who loses her home and travels around the American West doing seasonal work and joining a community of American nomads. Nomadland is streaming on Hulu. And Tay, I think this is the other movie that has a really, really good shot to win Best Picture because of how Hollywood interprets this movie and thinks about it in relation to itself. Hmm. I think we've had a big conversation the past few years, and this is not about the movie itself. It's about the reception of the movie. But again, this is our Oscars episode. It's not our Nomadland episode. We've had a conversation about who are true Americans, right? Who are the true Americans? What is real America? I don't think that that really is a thing. I think that talking about it at all is misleading, but there are a lot of people who are really engaged and interested in that question. And I think that Nomadland presents itself as being about real America, right? The people who lost their homes in the in the financial crisis, who are from small towns, who are from the American West, are in the American West, right? The American West plays such a huge role in the American psyche. I think that this is a movie that acts as if it's about the American dream while actually avoiding what that is really about and also avoiding what 
and who Americans are. I think that Hollywood has a very specific idea of of who they are. You know, you're in California, you're in Los Angeles, you're making art, you're generally very wealthy. So this feels like the polar opposite of that. But I do wish that stories about real America didn't have to be about poor white people in the American West and could instead be about, you know, like people in the service industry, people in manufacturing, people in office jobs, researchers, college students. There are so many different variations on the American experience Mm -hmm. that saying Hollywood is not real America. And by the way, Hollywood is real America. Hollywood is also America. America is all these things. And saying that Hollywood is a bubble apart and that the coasts are apart from real America. No, they're, they are real America, right? It's, it's all, all real America. Exactly. I like that point. So I have a little bit of trouble with this movie saying it's about real America, but I do think that that is one of the reasons why this movie is such a strong favorite because it takes a question that people in America are asking. What does it mean to be really American? And what are Americans like? And it answers that in a movie that is well-crafted and gives characters dignity and gives an idea about real America that I think is appealing for some people. I actually, I don't think that it's quite fair to say that this movie is saying that this is real America. Mm-hmm. I certainly think that that's the conversation around the movie, but I think that this movie does not necessarily intend to say that. Okay. I think it t- intends to tell vignettes of a specific American experience. Yes, that's a great point. But it's not trying to capture all of it. It's trying to capture a slice of one of one kind of experience. Yeah, a very specific portrayal into seasonal work among American nomads. Yeah. And that slice is really interesting. It is. And I think that this movie, watching it, it felt like this movie was slippery almost. Mm, that's it really, a good word. It resists... I think it resists even what you're saying, the the putting onto it of this is supposed to be representing some larger question of America. To be clear, that's not something I think the movie's trying to do. It's something I believe that Hollywood is trying to do onto this movie in relation to the Oscars. I agree. This movie is very contained and focused on what it wants to be. Mm -hmm. But I think it also resists any kind of expectation for what a movie should be. Yeah. It doesn't have a typical plot. It doesn't even have typical characters. I think that one of the most exciting things that Chloe Zhao did in this movie is she used real people, mostly. I mean, aside from... Francis McDormand and David Straithairn, they're all non-SAG-affiliated actors. Right. So a lot of them are telling their real story. Yeah. And she captured that so well. There's so much dignity and humanity in this movie. Yeah. And it's it's just really interesting because I think that for a lot of the movie, I felt kind of not sure how to get my footing mm. with it. And that kind of prevented me from emotionally investing a little bit. But I think that it feels a lot more like watching a documentary than it does like watching a movie because she is basically kind of interviewing real people. Yeah. It's unclear where reality stops and starts. Yeah. And this movie is very slow. Yeah. (laughs) Intentionally so. We've talked a bit for a few other movies, for a bunch of other movies now, about the way that the craft informs the story or doesn't inform the story. 
And I think that this movie does that really well in the way that it is slow and winding and honestly has some banality to it that reflects the banality of the lives of its characters. I think it uses the form and structure of the movie to enhance the story in a really cool and interesting way. I also think that way makes the movie a little boring. And I don't know, like, I understand that that is for the art, that that enhances the art of the movie, but it doesn't stop the movie from being a little boring at some points. I think for me personally, you know, watching this movie on my couch, that's part of the experience. And you can acknowledge that it's really beautiful and done purposely. This is not a poorly paced movie. It is a movie that is intentionally slow, but that is part of the experience that I had watching. I agree with that. I have a lot of respect for the craft of it. The craft is really fantastic. But I think that I personally am looking for more of a plot. Mm -hmm. And it's very intentional that this movie doesn't have that typical Hollywood plot. I think that there's a very meta commentary on this, you know, Hollywood feeling like it's resisting the Hollywood bubble in terms of what does real America look like, but Mm -hmm. also it's resisting the Hollywood storytelling map. Yeah, it feels different. And Hollywood has tended in recent years to go to things that feel different, whether that's Guillermo del Toro's stories in Shape of Water or Parasite getting out of America entirely. There's a little bit of, you know, what's fresh and new. And Chloe Zhao is definitely fresh and new. Yeah, but I mean, with Shape of Water and with Parasite, both of those do follow a more typical story structure. For sure, yeah. And so, I I, I mean, I think that it's interesting. It's an interesting meta thing of... This movie itself in its structure is just, it's resisting Hollywood (laughs) as well. None of that stops it from being a really interesting story. And this is one that will stick around. I do think, you know, it's the the last movie we're going to talk about. It's the Oscar favorite. I would encourage people to see it. It's on Hulu. It's easy to see. It's, you know, it's an enjoyable night at the movies. And I think there are things you can really appreciate about it, but... You know, it's not an action movie. Yeah, this movie very much encapsulates. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. Yeah, it's a very long journey. Yes, but I also sometimes would like there to be a destination. Yeah. (laughs) But it's a good one. So those are the eight movies that are nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. And before we give our picks for what we want to happen, I want to ask you something, Tay. Hmm. I want to get your picks for the writing categories and to hear a little bit about what you think it means to have Best Screenplay. So we're going to start with Best Original Screenplay. And I should say seven of the eight movies we've talked about are nominated for either Best Original or Best Adapted Screenplay. The only one that isn't is Mank. So starting with Best Original Screenplay, the movies nominated are Promising Young Woman, Trial of the Chicago 7, Minari, Sound of Metal, and Judas and the Black Messiah. And I'm wondering what you think just about the screenplay and the writing of those movies. I think it's probably fairly obvious. (laughs) Um, And I will try to be brief about this because I talked a lot already about it. I think Minari, for sure. And I think Trial of the Chicago 7 is probably the favorite for this category because of what I talked about, of the writing calling so much attention to itself. People think writing is just dialogue. Right. But writing is also about structure. It's about theme. It's about the way that 
scenes are put together to create a broader meaning and what that meaning is, but also even in terms of dialogue. I think that people might see Chicago 7 as being good dialogue because it's so snappy and that is a quality that is good. But with Minari, the dialogue serves so deeply to let us into these characters and let us understand these characters. And this movie is using two languages. It's so impressive the way that it does that, just the additional layer of skill. And it's not just that this family speaks two languages. It's that what do these two languages mean? How how are they used? In what scenes is Korean used versus English? How does communication change based on the language and based on language barriers? It's so smart. It's so thoughtful. And I really feel strongly that it should win. All right, we can move on. I want to ask about Promising Young Woman in that category, because that won the Writers Guild Award for Best Original Screenplay, which makes it sort of the preemptive Oscars favorite. I'm wondering what you thought about the writing in that movie. I loved that movie. I loved the writing in that movie. I think structurally, it's very impressive. It's really well paced. Mm -hmm. I think that that movie is fun because that movie does not try to be subtle. And you know that, but it Mm -hmm. doesn't often stray too into being on the nose. Oh, yeah. But there are a couple instances where it does, which I I felt like it was unnecessary to state the obvious. Mm -hmm. That said, it's excellent. Mm -hmm. It's just that Minari is even more excellent. (laughs) (laughs) I agree there are moments in Promising Young Woman. You hear these lines said that are the arguments people have against arresting rapists and people who are guilty of assault, you know, what would it do to them? You have to think of them. You have to innocent until proven guilty, that sort of thing. And you hear all these lines and how insane and awful they must sound. And almost always you are left as the audience. You know, they don't hammer that in too hard. They don't say it explicitly, but there are a few times that it does. Or when they say that Carrie Mulligan's character doesn't respond with the obvious response. Yeah. But Every once in a while, she does. And this is such a fine line to walk in a movie like this. And I'm fully aware (laughs) of the challenge there and that this is a personal preference thing. I felt like there were certain lines that felt like they could be obvious, like viral tweets. Mm -hmm. And if it's a viral tweet, a movie should maybe do a little more than that. Yeah. But I feel like in talking about it, it's, it sounds more critical than it is. I, the, I thought it was very good. So for Best Adapted Screenplay, we have Nomadland and The Father, which are respectively adapted from a book and a play, but also One Night in Miami, written by Kemp Powers and based off a play that he wrote in 2013, and also two movies we haven't seen, The White Tiger, written by Ramin Barani, based off a 2008 book by Arvind Adiga, and also Borat Subsequent Movie Film. Or Borat 2. Wait, what is Borat adapted from? Borat subsequent movie film is adapted from the character of Borat, which has been played historically by Sasha Baron Cohen. It's adapted from this character in the culture. And I think the reason why is that it is technically a sequel. And by the Oscars bylaws, all sequels are all adapted from the original. Really? So it's just adapted because it's a sequel. I think it's just adapted because it's a sequel. But also, to be very clear, I don't think there's a screenplay in this movie. 
All right. So and that's writing, interesting. <laughs> writing goes beyond screenplays, but the award is for best adapted screenplay. And I think that that movie is largely improvised. Also, it's the front runner. Borat won adapted screenplay at the WGA Awards. So there's a chance we haven't seen the movie. Hopefully we see it by the time the Oscars roll around. <laughs> but like, I don't know. I don't know. It might win. But we can't talk about that. But we can't talk about the three movies we have seen. First, I want to ask, what makes a good adapted movie? Well, this is not my area of expertise. So I'm just uh, talking as a movie viewer. <laughs> and award-winning writer of original material. <laughs> I think that every piece of media originally is written in its optimal form. Mm -hmm. I think that the artist makes a choice to tell a story in a specific medium because that is the only medium that that story can be told in. So the challenge of adaptation is creating a new story based off of the original that can only be told in a film medium. So for One Night in Miami, for example, which is about a true night where Malcolm X, Cassius Clay, later known as Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke spend a night in a hotel room talking about the Black experience in America, Black excellence, and Cassius Clay's movement towards the Nation of Islam. That started out as a play, and it is about these conversations between these characters and moving back and forth. And the movie keeps it, I think, relatively similar, that it's still just about these conversations. And that is great, but there's a reason it didn't elevate in a way. Yeah, I think my experience of watching that movie was enjoying it, feeling a little bit confused about what was happening because it didn't feel like a movie. Mm -hmm. And then maybe like a third of the way in, I realized that this is just meant to be a play and yeah. then enjoyed it much more from that mindset. It's really good in what it tries to do. Mm -hmm. But I think that The Father and Nomadland both do a really good job of turning this into a film-specific medium. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a lot to recommend Nomadland for the way that she brought in real people rather than written actors. Mm -hmm. And how that is a really interesting and exciting way of portraying nonfiction. I think that she easily could have written in characters based off of people, like real people in the book. But yeah. instead, she brought the the people yeah she brought the the feeling of nonfiction, the feeling of documentary into mm -hmm. the film also the vast american landscapes you know the mise-en-scene brings in the loneliness that the character's feeling the isolation in the movie because they're the only one on such a huge big screen yeah but i think that the father should win that because the film the camera lens is essential to this movie. And I just, I thought it was really good. I can see how it came from a play, mm -hmm. but it felt much broader. I think that something that people really like about plays and that's something that's really special about the format is that it feels much more intimate. Yeah. And there was still that feeling it's, it's a small cast, but it felt very big in scope. Yeah. In a way that's kind of hard to explain, but but feels very much in line with film versus a play. Yeah. Well, thank you for your expertise on those categories. Okay. So that brings us to the end. We're going to give two honorable mentions each, and 
then we're going to pick a joint winner because we've got the same winner. And honestly, you probably know what it is, but we're going to wait. (laughs) Um, So, Tay, what are your two honorable mentions? Promising Young Woman and The Father. Ooh, okay. So give us one minute each on why you liked them. Promising Young Woman and The Father, both of them, because I have never seen those respective topics and subject matter addressed that way. Oh, yeah. And it was so refreshing and exciting and tense to see these movies and the way that they portray the topics that they are talking about. That's such a great point that if you expect a movie about memory loss or a movie about sexual assault, you do not expect them to be respectively a psychological thriller and a black comedy, much less expertly crafted ones. So cool. And I I feel like those topics haven't necessarily been addressed so much in Hollywood. So it was it was nice to see them. What about you? Going to Chicago in 1968 because I am choosing Judas and the Black Messiah and The Trial of the Chicago 7. I cannot get enough Fred Hampton content this year. All aboard. Look, I love the sweeping fantasy of Trial of the Chicago 7. I will bite my tongue. I just, I liked it at that point. I'm a sucker for Aaron Sorkin. (laughs) I thought it was a lot of fun. I am going to watch it again at some point without you in the room. No, what you're going to do is you're going to watch many YouTube clips of the best scenes. You're acting like I haven't already done that. (laughs) And I'm probably going to inform my view of liberalism based on that movie because Aaron Sorkin has done that for me in the past and will probably continue to do that, unfortunately. Okay, but you see what I mean. I know it's so problematic. (laughs) I know, I know, but it's fun. It's fun. Like, I just wanted, look, it's the only movie this year, I think, that is just pure escapism. And I know it's escapism about police violence and brutality and protest, but still it's like fun escapism in some way. Because you can just be witty, 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 and then it's fixed. Exactly. Yeah. And the other is Judas and the Black Messiah. I just thought this movie was the most thoughtful movie of the year. It talks so much about power and responsibility and activism and what we owe to society. I love the way it plays between these two characters. And also, it's exciting. It's a thriller, and it is inspirational. And as Fred Hampton, Daniel Kaluuya is just so, so, so incredible. I thought it was great. I'm a big fan. That's my second honorable mention. I agree with you on that. And that leads us to our winner, who we would give Best Picture to if we could. Minari! (laughs) This movie is so good. It's so, so, so good. Please watch it. Please, 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 for us, listener, dear listener, (laughs) please watch this movie. Not only is it my favorite movie of the year, but it is my favorite movie of all time. It is so good. I love it. That's all. End of podcast. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. The Oscars are April 25th. We'll be live tweeting through the Oscars. So please follow us at Movie Culture Pod on Twitter. And you know, we'll be back for more Pixar movies next week. But thank you for joining us for our long diversion into the movies nominated for Best Picture. Yes. Thank you for letting us talk about non-kid movies for a couple hours. And we will see you next time. (music) 